And the second reading is from Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, and you'll find this on page 1042. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, I thank you so much for Claire. Lord, I thank you for her passion for your word. I thank you, Father, for all the time that she spent preparing, for the seeds that you've given to her to scatter into our lives. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, our ears, our minds, help us to be receptive. And Father, I pray that Claire would just know such a strong sense of being held in your presence. Would you fill her afresh with your Holy Spirit, I pray, as she gives out to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, there's a really lot to get through, so I'm just going to start. Um, as a church community this year, we're looking at the book of Luke, and today's passage is taken from Luke 11, and in it we find Jesus praying. When he finishes, a disciple approaches him and asks, Lord, teach us to pray, 
What's interesting is that Jesus' disciples were observant Jews who had grown up praying all their lives. These men were also the very disciples who earlier in Luke had been sent out with power to cast out demons, preach the kingdom, and to cure diseases. And yet, there was something in Jesus' praying that moved his disciples to ask, teach us to pray. Signs and wonders, evangelism and ministry activity were not enough. Teach us to pray came from encountering Jesus' constant prayerfulness and witnessing the closeness and communion Jesus shared with God. And Jesus responds not with a lecture or a seven-point plan, but with these words, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. In a few sentences, Jesus shares with the disciples his beliefs and his convictions. In these few lines, he gives them insight into the very things he cares most about and the truth that he lives for and will ultimately die for. Teach us to pray, the disciple asks. And Jesus' first point is, know that you are speaking to the Father. Now, Jesus was not unique in calling God Father. In the Old Testament, Moses, Isaiah, David, Malachi also had the revelation of God as Father. But when Jesus calls God Father, he is speaking from a unique vantage point. He is speaking as the only begotten Son of God who was in the beginning with God. Teach us to pray, the disciple asks. And Jesus opens with Father because he desires for them to share in this relationship and know that they can come to prayer in complete confidence. With this one word, Father, Jesus is inviting his disciples to redefine their mental picture of God. He is not remote. He is not detached. He is not hard-hearted. He is my father, and he is your father. And when Philip asks Jesus, show us the father and we will, will be satisfied, Jesus answers him, he who has seen me has seen the father. For Jesus wants his disciples to draw their image of God, not from their earthly father with all their limitations, but from him, Jesus himself. For in this way, they would see a God who is generous and gracious, a God who is seeking the lost and moving towards people in their sinfulness, a God who is inviting people to be healed and forgiven. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the God they are praying to is the loving, compassionate Father found in the parable of the prodigal son. Teach us to pray, the disciple asks, and Jesus knows that in saying Father, he is opening up his disciples to the relationship of sonship and its responsibilities, positioning the disciples to put concern for the father's passions before concern for their own. 
Consistent with this, Jesus continues, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. In these two short sentences, Jesus reorients his disciples' thinking, language, and lives to the presence and action of God and involves them deeply in what their Father God is doing. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to eat of the forbidden tree to be like God, independent of him and wise in their own right, man has been enslaved to a rebellious heart that hates to rely on God and loves to make a name for himself. The Tower of Babel was a manifestation of that rebellion. The key phrase in Genesis 11, which shows what caused God to become angry with these tower builders and disperse them, comes in verse four. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves rather than align themselves with their creator father's name. Hallowed be your name, then, is a prayer to the Father that his name, that is his reputation, his nature, his very being, would once again be hallowed. That the Father himself would see to it that his name would be treated as holy, that his name would be set apart as valuable in the minds and hearts of the people. Jesus is, in fact, drawing on his Father's own words, as prophesied by Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, God is recorded as saying, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. The prayer, hallowed be your name then, is a call for the Father to fulfill his own promise. It is a request to God, of God, that he would overcome blindness to seeing him, that he would overcome indifference to him, that he would remove obstacles to knowing and admiring, loving, trusting, and obeying him. And the disciples are taught to ask this of the Father, not because God has some selfish desire to become famous on earth, but because this plea flows out of the Father's desire to restore the brokenness of the world and to make his creation his perfect kingdom again. Indeed, this call for the Father to act is made even more explicit in Jesus' prayer, your kingdom come. Brief as it is, no more comprehensive prayer than this can be prayed. All the Old Testament prophecies of deliverance and salvation come to expression in your kingdom come. It entails God by his sovereign, supernatural grace, bringing his reign to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It entails a world of peace and justice without death, disease, and conflict, and the wiping away of all tears from all eyes. Teach us to pray, the disciple asks, and in teaching them, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Jesus is cultivating within them not merely a personal, private prayer, but a prayer life which in every time they pray, there should come over them the awareness that they are interceding before God, their Father, 
for all people, for all nations. That God has ordered his creation in such a way to allow prayer to play a vital part in the outworking of his purposes. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come then, is not mere wishful thinking. It's a demand to be made of the Father, and it's said in trust, with the expectation that he will live up to his promises. Having grounded his disciples in God's story, God's plan, God's purpose, Jesus then teaches his disciples to pray, give us each day our daily bread. As compared to kingdoms, bread may seem somewhat a trivial prayer, but Jesus knows the people to whom he speaks of the kingdom. He knows it's precisely these trivialities of life that most often keep them from him and divert them from the kingdom. It's the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. And after all, it was Esau's appetite for lentil soup that robbed him of his eternal birthright and blessing. And because Jesus knows this, he doesn't forbid the disciples from relating these things to the Father. On the contrary, he takes the initiative and teaches them to pray, God, give us each day our daily bread. In so doing, Jesus is renewing their thinking to the reality that each day's provision is a gift. Give us is teaching them that they are dependent. Jesus knows it often doesn't feel that way. When he'd asked the disciples to feed the 5,000, they had replied, we've no more than five fish, no, five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. That's life, right? We work, we go to the shop and we buy our bread. It seems like it comes from us. But in Psalm 145, the psalmist says, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. In teaching his disciples to daily pray for their needs, Jesus is reshaping their understanding of their lives in the world, weaning them away from their independence of God and their independence of others. For Jesus does not want his disciples to be like the Israelites in the wilderness, who though fed by God for 40 years, looked upon the manna and their full stomachs as ending themselves and missed the hand of God behind the provision. As James will say, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. Jesus knows that this mindset, that food, shelter, clothing, that life itself is given, not grabbed, that the stuff of life is received from God, not wrenched from the earth, that this mindset is kingdom mindset. And kingdom mindset inspires generosity and causes people to live in the reality you are blessed to be a blessing. And this sense of dependence, this positioning of his disciples in the Father's story continues with, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. By admitting that they need God's forgiveness, 
The disciples are kept aware of their own sinfulness, not to be tied to guilt, but in order to keep their feet on the ground and overcome the temptation to judge and condemn others. For Jesus is aware that man's ego makes him conveniently forget his own sinfulness. Due to its emotional need to protect and promote self, man's ego insists on easing God out and enthroning itself on the seat of judgment. But this is the attitude which Jesus calls out when he challenges those without sin to cast the first stone at the woman caught in adultery. For muckraking is not gospel work. Shaming is not gospel work. Forgiving sin is gospel work. God deals with our sin by forgiving us. And that's why Jesus says, forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. For by acknowledging not only their sin, but God's forgiveness, Jesus intends to shape his disciples' willingness and readiness to forgive others. For Jesus is uncompromising in his words that the disciples must forgive. For he wants his disciples to understand that the less they forgive, the less conscious they become of the need for it themselves. And the ultimate issue with refusing to forgive is that man's heart remains closed and this hardness makes him impervious to the Father's love. Jesus knows that only forgiveness stops the tit for tat, the eye for an eye that goes on in a ceaseless circle. And so Jesus says, forgive us our sins for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, knowing that these words are soon to be echoed from the cross when he will say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus will soon leave his disciples the greatest example of authentic forgiveness, for he is humanity's representative and he's going to take the hit. Ultimately, Jesus absorbs all of the consequences of our human sin and broken relationship into himself and he chooses not to get even but to forgive. Teach us to pray, the disciple asks. And Jesus finishes his prayer with, and lead us not into temptation. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that if they let this prayer inspire them, they can expect opposition and temptation. They can expect trials and testings. While God does not tempt anyone to do evil, he does permit tests to come into the lives of believers. The tests Jesus knows are part of the process of strengthening and maturing the disciples. How they respond to those tests determines whether they remain perfecting trials that bring spiritual growth or become temptations that overwhelm and lead to sin. Jesus himself has already endured a test in the desert, Luke shares, and he was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness tempted by the devil. In his divinity, Christ is one with the Father, but his humanity, his humanity had to grow into holiness by being trained and confronting temptations. What was tested in the desert was his loyalty and allegiance to the Father and whether he was willing to trust his Father to bring the kingdom as a loving self-sacrificial saviour or whether he was going to embrace the worship me 
and I'll give you authority over the nations of the earth. Had he given in to the devil's temptations of self-ambition and self-promotion, he could not have been the Messiah his father sent him to be. Had he failed in the wilderness, he could not have been sent to the cross. And so what the devil intended as Jesus' downfall, the father uses to make him into the man God has called to deliver his people. And so too with his disciples. The testing that life sends is not meant to lead them into sin, but to make something great of them. Teach us to pray, the disciple asks. And Jesus gives them full permission to say to their father, lead us not into temptation. For Jesus himself will say, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But that's before he comes to a place of surrender and accepts, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so Jesus acknowledges that every day his disciples will need to be reminded that following God, following him, is hard and great tests, trials and temptations will come. But they come not as signs that the Father has abandoned them, but paradoxically they are signs that the Father is with them and he will deliver them through in some way. Teach us to pray, the disciple asks, And with these short six phrases, Jesus gives them his very own heartbeat and the essence of all his preaching. There is no better summary of Jesus' whole mission than these words. And Jesus shares them with his disciples because if they are to take over his mission, they need the same union with the Father in prayer, where God is given first place and their prayers give life to others. But Jesus also knows that it takes power to keep God central in everything. And it takes power to knock all the self-advancement and the self-centeredness out of men's lives. This power does not come by the earnest gritting of our teeth and striving to achieve it. It comes through the Holy Spirit. So the climax to Jesus' teaching on prayer comes with the words, If you then, being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus concludes his teaching by telling his disciples to ask for the Holy Spirit, to ask God for the gift of himself. The Holy Spirit, Jesus knows, is the precious and necessary gift who will empower the disciples to live and think like him, who will empower them not to merely recite the Lord's Prayer, but to actually live it. Father, Jesus teaches, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows, is the precious and necessary gift who affects this intimate relationship. As Paul says in Romans, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him, We cry, Abba, Father. Hallowed be your name, Jesus teaches. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows, is the precious and necessary gift through whom God will fulfill his promise spoken in Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Your kingdom come, Jesus teaches, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows, is the precious and necessary gift who will manifest God's rule and reign, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Give us each day our daily bread, Jesus teaches, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows, is the precious and necessary gift who will move them to live a life of generosity. As Luke shares in Acts, there was none among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, Jesus teaches, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows, is the precious and necessary gift who will empower Stephen, a man just the same as us, to forgive his accusers as they stone him. Lord, do not charge them with this sin, are Stephen's last words. Lead us not into temptation, Jesus teaches, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows, is the precious and necessary gift who will allow Paul to recognize the thorn in his flesh as a gift. As Paul will share with the Corinthians, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so here on Pentecost Sunday, we remember how the word of Jesus to the disciples was fulfilled, that the Father did what he promised. He sent the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he did so in response to prayer. For prayer precedes power. That's why we shouldn't give up. That's why Jesus emphasizes persistence, because absolutely nothing can be accomplished for God apart from the power and work of the Holy Spirit. If the source of Jesus' life and ministry was the Holy Spirit himself, then that should be conviction enough that we too cannot do anything without the help of God's empowering presence. And so today, as we remember God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise, Let's take encouragement in knowing that as we sincerely and persistently ask, seek, and knock, Revelation 3 gives the other side of the coin. Here we are told that the Lord is knocking at the door of our hearts, seeking entrance. If this seeking and knocking is happening on both sides of the door, then there will be wonderful results. Amen. <laughs>